I want to remind everybody about the podcast challenge and more detail is in the show notes. Essentially, I'm going to give away free autographed copies of my book, Make Dementia Your Bitch. I received my author copies today. I was so excited. And to get a free copy of my book, please rate and review my podcast on your favorite site, on your favorite platform, like Audible or Anchor or Spotify or Apple Tunes or Google Play or Stitcher or CastBox. Wherever you are listening, please go to the place where you can rate and review my podcast, rate it and review it. Please send me a screenshot and you can email it to rita.jablonski at gmail.com. And that's probably the easiest way. I The deadline for the challenge is Friday, March 11th, which is a week from this Friday. So Friday, March 11th at five o'clock central is the deadline. So far, I've, I'm getting some very interesting and awesome reviews. Thank you. And if you also want to see some hilarious memes, my family, it started out with my brother, Joe, my family decided to take interesting pictures of people reading my book. Joe started it with, he has a picture of himself on the commode reading my book, and it is hilarious. So if you want to see these memes. They are on my Facebook page, Make Dementia Your B. I'm also going to start posting them on Instagram. This is the Make Dementia Your Bitch podcast, where I explain how caregivers can lovingly respond to confusing or challenging behaviors and reconnect with family members living with dementia. The information in this podcast is for educational purposes and is no substitute for medical advice or care. The topic is dementia and medications, sleep, depression, and behaviors. That's what I'm going to talk about. Why do people living with dementia seem so irritable and every little thing causes a meltdown? Why do people living with dementia suffer from depression, even if they never did in the past? I answer these questions in today's podcast, but before I dive in, I'd like to share something personal. This week was rough. My dog, Amira, became very sick and was hospitalized. I'm happy to say she is much better. I have to give a shout out to Steel City Vets in Hoover, Alabama, who took great care of her. But even with these awesome vets, vet techs, and veterinary nurses, I was still a bundle of emotions. I was sad. What if I lose her? I was worried. Will she be okay? Is she scared? Does she think I abandoned her? So all of these emotions and thoughts were just flying around in my brain. 
I basically stayed somewhat for me balanced and I didn't lose my shit because first I was able to cope using reason. I knew I made the most logical choice and I had used Steel City emergencies before when my cat Pippin became ill one weekend. So I knew I had made a good choice. I was also able to cope using communication skills. I called the clinic and checked on her and spoke to very nice people who constantly gave me updates. I was also able to cope using social support. I have a very understanding network of friends and family who are dog people, including my daughter, Sarah, who wanted to know the visitation policy so she could stop by. Luckily, Amir was discharged in 24 hours, so there is no need for that. Let's shift gears now and talk about people living with dementia. They also experience emotions, but their brain changes can make it very challenging for them to handle emotions and moods the way they did before the disease showed up. Plus, the isolation from the disease often takes away friends and family who, in the past, offered needed support. This sucks, but it is a sad reality. People living with dementia also experience brain changes. These brain changes can make it hard for them to handle the common moods we all experience, like irritation, frustration, sadness, and anger. In some cases, you may notice that a person living with dementia flies off the handle, even when faced with minor, even petty, or in your opinion, stupid problems. There are non-drug ways to handle these moods and mood swings. And I talk about them a lot in the other 30 plus episodes of this podcast. However, there may be times when non-drug approaches do not totally work or may not work at all. Here are some common medications that may be prescribed to help soften common moods and emotions experienced by people living with dementia. People living with dementia likely have lower serotonin levels and other useful brain chemicals. Why? Brain cells, neurons, they make brain chemicals. If you lose neurons, which you do with all the dementias, you lose the ability to keep your brain chemicals at the correct levels. Some chemicals are needed for memory, like acetylcholine, which I discussed in last week's podcast. Other neurochemicals keep us from feeling hopeless and depressed, even when going through rough times, like serotonin. Some chemicals help us from feeling overly anxious, norepinephrine. These brain chemicals have other jobs in other parts of the body, but right now I'm going to focus just on the brain. So people living with dementia may experience new depression, or if they struggled with depression in the past, the depression may appear, may reappear with a vengeance. So I'm going to talk about some antidepressants that a provider and when I use the term provider, it's shorthand for someone who prescribes, like a nurse practitioner, a physician, a psychiatrist, 
or a physician's assistant. And to anybody listening out there who is a physician assistant, I do not mean to forget about you. I'm a nurse practitioner, so my brain always goes there. But to all my PAs out there, thank you for what you do and thank you for listening. So let's talk about what's called an SSRI, also known as a selective serotonin reuptake inhibitor. As I mentioned in my blog about acetylcholine esterase inhibitors, brain cells like to constantly keep the brain chemicals fresh. There's a continuous process. Nerve cells make the chemical, they slurp up the chemical, or they break it down and slurp up the components, and then they make fresh chemical. So they circulate constantly. And this similar process occurs with serotonin. Now, if you're losing neurons, which does happen with the dementias, then it makes sense that the levels of serotonin drop because of the brain's inability to keep up the necessary levels of serotonin as the disease gets worse. There are several SSRIs which keep the levels of serotonin higher than usual in someone's brain. Two that are commonly used with people living with dementia are sertraline or Zoloft and citalopram known as Celexa. These two are commonly used because there's quite a bit of published information compared to the other SSRIs in people living with dementia. And I will put the references in the show notes. So Sites and several other researchers published a systematic review in which they identified a couple of studies that showed that both sertraline and citalopram, when given, not only helped the depression, but it also decreased the agitated behaviors. A quick note about systematic reviews. You may be listening and saying, what the hell is a systematic review? When experts complete a systematic review, they search for all the studies to answer a specific question. Which are the best antidepressants to use in people living dementia? And then they identify outcomes such as decrease in depression or improvement in behaviors. After they put together their question and they, uh, then they say, state what research articles would meet the inclusion or exclusion criteria. So they literally sample what's been published within a certain time period. Some go back five years, some go back 30. It depends on what's available. And then they go, once they choose publications that meet a specific criteria, they then go back and analyze the results. And what some do is some will get original databases from researchers if they can't figure out what the, if the results are unclear, they may ask for original data and run it again, or they can take the existing results if the results are detailed enough. And if several studies say all looked at the same outcome, like, depression, and they all used similar instruments to measure depression, there's ways to put all of these results together and make a huge data set and then get better statistical analyses to see if something really worked. And the bottom line is studies that involve larger and more diverse groups of people 
and that used randomization, meaning the people who participated were picked at random to receive a drug, a placebo, or whatever treatment they were looking at, those types of studies are rated as having a higher quality than studies that involve small groups of similar people who get the same drug or treatment, and the researcher simply looks at the before and after in one group. Hint, if you look at a lot of those infomercials out there, you'll notice they do the before and after pictures, and I wonder if the before and after results are even of the same people, but that's my bias. Systematic reviews are helpful because one can decide which study results should affect clinical practice and which study results may be problematic and you do not want to pay any attention to it. So that's uh, where we're going at with this. So going back to this slide, and if you are listening to the podcast, sorry, you don't see the slide is that we, I, I talked about the two SSRIs and another antidepressant commonly given to people living with dementia is trazodone, also known as Electro. And trazodone belongs to a category known as serotonin modulators, which do a couple of things. Yes, they do act like the SSRIs by blocking up the reuptake of serotonin and they also act on several other receptors that are part of the whole serotonin neurotransmitter system. Because you don't have just one serotonin receptor, you have several. Trazodone is often used off-label as a sleep aid, and another systematic review notes that it does work. When using trazodone, you can get a boost of serotonin and get help with dealing with sleep difficulties. So one medication can address two issues and that helps cut down on overprescribing. And all three of these medicines, the sertraline, the citalopram and the trazodone, the safety profile of all three of these meds are better than antipsychotics that are oftenly prescribed to address some of the same issues, to address agitation and to address sleep. And I will talk about antipsychotics a little later. There's another class of antidepressants known as serotonin and norepinephrine reuptake inhibitors, SNRIs. These medications block the uptake of both serotonin and norepinephrine. And as I said before, norepinephrine helps with concentration and reduces depression. And an example of an SNRI is duloxetine, also known as Cymbalta. Another common one is venlafaxine, also known as Effexa. I could not locate any systematic reviews that examined the use of SNRIs in people living with dementia. And just because I didn't locate one does not mean there are problems with these meds. It just means that the research has not caught up to clinical practice. The take home message is that everyone reacts differently to medications. If medications from one category do not have the desired effect, clinicians will try medications from another category. 
until we have better genetic testing available to see how people potentially metabolize medications and whether one type of medication would be more beneficial than another, prescribing remain trial and error. Let's take a short break, and when I come back, we'll talk about benzodiazepines. There's another category I want to talk about because this is a very problematic category, and these are the benzodiazepines. Benzodiazepines are prescribed for sedation. There are some that are called hypnotics, and there are some that are called anxiolytics, meaning they're given for people who are having anxiety. And this category includes meds for anxiety, such as lorazepam, also known as Ativan, and alprazolam, also known as Cirax. There are medications that are prescribed for sleep, such as temazepam, also known as Restoril, and triazolam, also known as Halcyon. While some of these medications may have a place for short-term use for things like acute anxiety attacks or panic attacks, or they may be beneficial in the psychiatric management of psychotic behavior. These medicines are not good for long-term use in people living with dementia. And really the recommendation is that benzodiazepines should not be used long-term for anyone unless you're dealing with a psychiatric illness that is actively being managed by a psychiatrist. Where I'm going with this is benzodiazepines have adverse events, impaired memory, impaired judgment, and impaired coordination. So why prescribe them for someone who is already struggling with memory issues or who also has judgment issues in the case of frontotemporal dementia or someone who may be having problems with walking and movement? These medications are also linked with increased falls in older adults. And ironically, even though benzodiazepines are widely prescribed for anxiety and sleep in older adults with dementia, there have been no randomized clinical trials testing these drugs and their risks, benefits, and alternatives. So again, even though benzodiazepines tend to be widely prescribed in older adults for dementia, we don't have empirical proof that they're the best choice. And in my many years of doing this, I stay away from benzodiazepines. And McCleary, Cohen, and Sharpley did a nice systematic review, and I'll put the publication information in the show notes. Another medication that your loved one may be prescribed is something that is used to stabilize mood. And there are, it's a product of medications known as valproate products. And these are actually seizure meds, anti-seizure meds. Some of the meds that you may see 
are Depakine, which is valproic acid, Depakote sprinkles, which is divalproic sodium, and Depakote, which is sodium valproate. These products are usually prescribed to persons with dementia who are showing physical aggression and agitation, again, as a mood stabilizer. A meta-analysis by Balin and colleagues found no evidence of benefit in this medication. That is, they didn't find that this medicine helped a substantial amount of people. To be honest, we're taught that when someone with dementia is having a lot of anger and uh, rage, this is a, a something we go to. And I have seen situations where it has worked. I've also seen situations where it doesn't. So this is just something that one may encounter. And as I noted in the previous podcast about acetylcholinesterase inhibitors, I provide this information to help empower family caregivers because oftentimes family caregivers are going to their provider and they're saying, I'm taking care of my loved one and my loved one is doing these things. And the first thing the provider does is write a prescription. And that's where my practice is very different because the first thing I do is ask a lot of questions and I try to untangle what may be triggering the behavior, be it the environment, be it how the caregiver is approaching because a lot of times people who are caregivers are approaching in a way that they've done for years in a logical, systematic way, which works for everybody except for people living with dementia. So that's why I'm presenting this information because I want to make sure that people living with dementia and their family caregivers are able to make the best choices they can. Next, I'm going to jump into antipsychotic medications. Antipsychotic medications are not benign. They are commonly prescribed to people living with dementia, that is true. And they are two main categories, first generation and second generation of antipsychotics. The second generation are also called atypicals. The first generation antipsychotics. These first generation antipsychotics work by blocking the D2 receptors. They are D2 receptor antagonists. And they are used for psychiatric conditions such as acute psychosis, schizophrenia, acute agitation, and bipolar mania. And the thinking is in people with these disease processes, the reason why people with acute psychosis, schizophrenia, et cetera, are having hallucinations and delusions and other behaviors is because the D2 receptors are being stimulated. Stimulation of the D2 receptors may cause delusions, hallucinations, and other behaviors in these diseases. We don't know if that's true for dementia. And there are some scientists who are questioning that maybe the behaviors we see in dementia are due to something else going on, okay? The problem with these first-generation antipsychotics is if you give them, 
there's a high risk for movement disorders, such as what's called extra pyramidal side effects. I want to go in in a second. And the reason is the D2 receptors are also important for movement, which is why first-generation antipsychotics are not a good idea for people living with dementia. You're blocking the same receptor that you need to move. There's a high risk of movement disorders like akathisia, which is people can't stay still, or acute dystonic reactions, which are involuntary repeated twisting movements that can be painful, and tardive dyskinesia, which are involuntary repeated movements like grimacing, lip smacking, tongue protrusion, eye movements, and, and other head and neck movements. And it can also extend to other parts of the body. Examples of first-generation antipsychotics include drugs like haloperidol, also known as Haldol, and thiothixine, also known as Navane, and trifluoroperazine, known as Stelazine, and chlorpromazine, also known as Thorazine. The risk of movement disorders is increased in people living with Lewy body dementia or Parkinson's disease dementia. Another issue with first-generation antipsychotics is they block acetylcholine levels. They are anticholinergic, which is a problem with people who have Alzheimer's dementia and it can make memory problems worse. So we give a medicine that may or may not help with hallucinations or delusions or some type of behavior, and we make the memory problems worse. That's why, to be honest, nobody with dementia really should be getting a first-generation antipsychotic. I know in acute care, if you have someone living with dementia and they go into the hospital, I know Haldol is often used. If my loved one with dementia ever goes into a hospital, I will lose my shit if I find out Haldol is being prescribed. And this is my personal opinion, just putting it out there. And I do tell any nurse practitioner or physician that I train that if I ever catch them prescribing Haldol, I will not be fun to deal with. First they laugh and then they realize I'm not kidding. The next class of antipsychotics or category rather, are the second generation antipsychotics. These medications target multiple receptors, including the D2 ones. But unlike the first generation antipsychotics, the second generation antipsychotics target multiple receptors and they land and then quickly get off of the D2 receptors. Therefore, the second generation antipsychotics are good with psychiatric conditions like the first generation ones, but they are less likely to cause the movement disorders. These second generation antipsychotics include aripiprazole, known as Abilify, I always stumble on that, clozapine or clozaril, olanzapine, Zyprexa, and with the Abilify, that is least likely to cause cardiac problems, but it does have some movement disorder risk and it can cause insomnia, which you really don't want in someone living with dementia. 
Clozapine can cause drooling, constipation, sedation, and dizziness because it causes the blood pressure to drop. And Zyprexa does negatively affect acetylcholine levels. So if you're giving Zyprexa and Dinepazil, you could have an issue with that. And there's also two others are quetiapine, known as Seroquel, and Risperidone, known as Risperdal. Seroquel is the least likely to cause movement disorders, but it also can cause sedation and low blood pressure, especially when people are moving from getting up, like laying down to sitting to standing. And it does have risk for weird heart rates, what's called arrhythmias, that if they get bad enough can result in death. And you have to watch quetiapine if you're combining it with other medicines that have a, a effect on an, causing an irregular heart rate. To be fair, I've seen and prescribed Seroquel for close to a decade and to date haven't discovered anyone having an irregular heartbeat, but again, that's out there. Now, risperidone of all these drugs has the highest risk of movement disorders and it's not a good idea in someone who has Lewy body dementia or Parkinson's disease dementia. You really have to watch it. There are situations where the behaviors are so rough for the caregivers that they'll try a, diff a, a bunch of different antipsychotics and risperidone is the only one that shows benefit, but you really have to watch what's going on. And the thing with the second generation antipsychotics, well, actually with all antipsychotics, but especially with the atypicals, is when I looked at different systematic reviews that I could get my hands on, and there is one that I quote from by Yunusa and, and the rest and, and colleagues that was published in 2019, they wrote that insufficient evidence exists on which a typical antipsychotic is both safest and most beneficial across several measures of people living with dementia. And this study suggests that a single most effective and safe treatment option may not exist, which is another reason why I am very much pro-behavioral management. And I do notice a trend in a lot of the Facebook groups. So if you are a family caregiver and you are on some of these Facebook pages that are designed to support and help family caregivers of people living with dementia, yes, there are resources and there are some good things in them. But be really careful about some of the moderators. My take-home message is use this information to have an informed conversation with whoever is prescribing a medication. That's what I want. I want you to use this information to start the conversation, to help you ask questions, to help you feel more prepared, to help you feel less intimidated by a clinic. Thank you very much for listening to my podcast. And if this information was way too heavy, 
The same information is in written form in my blog, Make Dementia Your Bitch. And that has all of the stuff in there with, has all the information in written form. Because some people want, may want to go back and read this. Other people, they've had enough and they're ready to move on to the next podcast. I hope you found this podcast helpful. Please rate and review on your favorite podcast platform so other dementia caregivers can find this podcast. If you are a caregiver for someone with dementia and need help understanding and dealing with these behaviors, please contact me. You can find me on Facebook, Make Dementia Your Bee, or email me, info at makedementiayourbitch.com.